This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Worldwide, cervical cancer is a very common malignancy for women, although the number of cases in the U.S. has been declining. The overwhelming majority of cases are caused by infection with the human papillomavirus. And due to a combination of HPV immunization and early detection with cervical cancer screening, advanced cervical cancer should be preventable. And if it does occur, when detected early, cervical cancer is one of the more treatable malignancies. If you perform cervical cancer screening for your patients, you know that the guidelines have become a bit more complicated than in the past. And to help us sort out who's a candidate for cervical cancer screening, when screening should start, and how often it should be performed, we have as our guest today, Dr. Kathy McLaughlin, a family physician in the Department of Family Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. Kathy, welcome. Thank you, Daryl. Well, let's start by talking about cervical cancer screening and how effective it is. Has screening really been shown to be effective in reducing the incidence of cervical cancer? Most certainly it has, yes. Um, About 100 years ago, cervical cancer was actually the leading cause of death for women in the United States. But since the pap test was widely implemented in the 1950s, the incidence and the mortality from cervical cancer have dropped by about 75% in our country. And even with the availability of HPV vaccination for primary prevention, screening remains a priority. Okay. So when should we encourage our patients to begin cervical cancer screening? Yeah, there are two options and it depends on which guideline you follow, which I think fits your comment about the confusion, I think sometimes about what we should be doing. But the United States Preventive Services Task Force currently recommends starting at age 21 and they last updated their guidelines in 2018. More recently, the American Cancer Society in 2020 came out with new guidelines recommending starting at age 25, which is consistent with many Northern European guidelines. And in my opinion, both options are safe and reasonable. What matters most is continuing to have one of the recommended screening tests at the recommended intervals. So we have a couple of things we can test for. We can certainly do the uh, cervical cancer pap test. We could also test for HPV. Do we do both? Is one preferable over the other? Sure, that's a great question. And really the answer depends on the age of the patient. And again, the guideline that you choose to follow. The USPSTF recommends pap testing or cervical cytology every three years for 21 to 29 year olds. And then from age 30 to 65, there are three options that they offer and they don't preferentially recommend one over the other, but it would be pap testing every three years, a pap and HPV test together, which is called a co-test every five years, or a new option called a primary HPV test, which would be every five years. So this is a little bit different than the American Cancer Society. Again, when they updated in 2020, they recommended starting at 25, and they preferentially recommend primary HPV testing at five-year intervals for 25 to 65-year-olds. They acknowledge that not all healthcare systems and labs are set up to run primary HPV tests, so they still support co-testing or cytology or PAP alone, but they strongly recommend primary HPV screening. And that's part of the confusion. There's so many recommendations out there from different groups, and it was so much easier in the past when we just did a pap smear once a year. But, 
I call 2012 the golden age because that's when actually all of the guideline groups aligned with each other, yeah. which lasted until 2018. <laughs> well, so we're to start cervical cancer screening, either 21 or age 25, depending on which guideline you want to follow. What if the patient has never been sexually active? What's the reason then for starting sure. at that age? Yeah. Yeah, the older guidelines actually did take sexual history into account in terms of the starting age. But since 2012, that has not been taken into consideration, which I think is confusing for providers because we know HPV has the potential to cause cervical cancer and is sexually transmitted. I think the reason that the guideline groups in 2012 said, let's just start at 21 is that it was practical to do so to not base the screening start on sexual history, recognizing that a lot of people have been sexually active by 21 or now 25 if you use the ACS guideline. But certainly if I see a patient who shares with me that they've never been sexually active and they wonder why they would need screening or if they should have it, that's the time to really dig in a little bit with the sexual history. We need to make sure that patients understand that HPV can be transmitted by external genital skin on skin contact and by shared sex toys. So we just need to clarify how they define I'm not sexually active. And if they're truly not engaged in sexual behaviors that would put them at risk of an HPV infection, I'm very comfortable documenting that, holding on screening, but telling them that my thoughts about that would change as soon as they become sexually active in the future. So they need to be responsible to come back in and let me know that. Okay. We know that the vast majority of uh, cervical cancer originates from an infection with HPV. Are there other causes the only other cause we really know about is that of in utero DES exposure. So DES was used until the early 1970s with the good intent of preventing miscarriage, but unfortunately, subsequently it was found that fetal exposure was linked to clear cell, vaginal, and cervical adenocarcinoma. So it's a little bit different mechanism, but that is another risk for cervical cancer, but that's incredibly rare. Those women are still in your practice, so you need to ask if they are aware of any exposure, but they will eventually kind of age out of the screening group. And so really the majority of cervical cancers are all about HPV. Okay. I know with colon cancer, we have a fair length of time before an adenomatous polyp has a potential to turn malignant, usually you know, 10 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. Is that the case in cervical cancer as well? How long does it take for high-grade changes in cervical cancer to actually turn into a cervical cancer? Yeah, it is actually quite similar. And I think making sure patients understand that can be reassuring because I think a lot of women are still concerned about the three or five-year interval screening. But in terms of an HPV infection, about 90% of the time that is cleared or undetectable within a couple of years. But if it sticks around, the issue is that about five to 10 years later, you can start seeing the precancers or the CIN two and three. And usually we tend to see that in the mid twenties to mid thirties. And then from there, another 10 to 15 years later, we start to see the first cancer peak in the forties. So it is a fairly long period of time. Usually folks will say about 15 to 25 years, even from completely normal cervix to cancer. So there's a lot of opportunity with screening to catch that in an earlier stage where it can be treated and prevented. And that's one of the reasons it makes this such a good screening test. It, it's got this long latent period. It's relatively easy to perform and it's inexpensive and it's very accurate. So it, it is a wonderful screening test that we have now. I have had some patients who have had a hysterectomy. I'm not their primary care provider, but I see them and they have continued to have cancer screening. It's always puzzled me. Is there a reason why women with hysterectomy would still need cancer screening? 
most women who've had a hysterectomy do not need cervical cancer screening or well, they don't have a cervix, but they don't need screening bad for vaginal HPV cancer. And the issue is really women who've had CIN23, so that's moderate to severe dysplasia that usually would have been treated with a loop excision procedure, adenocarcinoma in situ or cervical cancer. So those women are in a higher risk group that do need to continue to have screening. But if their hysterectomy was only for heavy menstrual bleeding, fibroids, they never had those severe pap abnormalities or cancer, then they can discontinue screening. It's a little confusing if they have a hysterectomy for benign reason, but they previously had a LEAP or CIN23. The new guidelines would suggest that those women actually should have HPV-based testing every three years after their hysterectomy, 25 years past the LEAP date or the treatment date for the precancer. So that gets a little complicated, but those are the main um, people who still need to do that. And then the other group is that small group of women with in utero DES exposure because they have that clear cell adenocarcinoma risk of vaginal cancer. And so they should continue screening as well. Okay. So you've told us the guidelines suggest maybe three to five years. Who would need more frequent cancer screening? I think it's helpful to think about high-risk women in one of two categories, women who are high-risk and not immunocompromised and women who are high-risk because they are immunocompromised. So the high-risk women who are not immunocompromised include those who have, again, had the cervical and intraepithelial neoplasia 2 or 3, CIN23, adenocarcinoma into site 2 or cervical cancer. And then the other group that needs more frequent screening are the immunosuppressed women. So women living with HIV, those who have had solid organ transplants, or who are on a chronic immunosuppressant medication for other reasons, such as an autoimmune condition. And so for those immunosuppressed women, the newer guidelines suggest that they should have annual pap testing for three years in a row before extending to a three-year interval pap in their 20s. But once they turn 30, or if their immunosuppression develops after 30, they should have co-testing, so a pap with an HPV test at three-year intervals instead of five-year intervals, and they don't have to have annual testing before going into that three-year interval. Do we continue this forever? When can we stop (laughs) cancer screening in cervical cancer? Yeah, that's a a great question as well. So there are specific exit criteria that allow women to stop screening over age 65. I think what we're increasingly recognizing is that we don't do such a great job applying that exit criteria. There was a recent study that looked at 1,500 women in a safety net clinic and 600,000 women through an insurance claims database. And they found that about 60% of women who were 65 years old were not eligible to exit. So basically there's some specific criteria that includes either three consecutive negative pap tests in a row, 10 years prior to exiting, and one of those tests has to be within three years, or if HPV-based testing is being used, so that would be the pap HPV co-test or primary HPV, they need to have two consecutive negative tests with one within the past five years. And then if they meet that criteria, they may exit. And it's important that we have electronic health record documentation of that. And if we don't have those records and can't get them, then the recommendation is that you would continue screening for that 10 year period until they meet that, that you can prove they've had those negative tests. I wanted to mention again, the CIN23 adenocarcinoma in site two cervical cancer and in utero DES women often can't exit at 65. For the women who've had that leap excision procedure, they have to be screened for 25 years after that. And ASCCP, which is kind of the guru of the management, says it's reasonable to continue longer. And those other high-risk women, frankly, don't ever really meet exit criteria, but eventually through shared clinical decision-making, you say, okay, 
could you have treatment? Would you have treatment? You know, that kind of approach. As a geriatrician, I've had some women in my practice now for over 30 years, and they made the change from every one year, which we used to recommend for past smears to every three or five. And that was uncomfortable for them because they were used to having it every year. And it was really uncomfortable for them when I told them at 65, since you've never had any abnormalities, you don't need these anymore. And some prefer to just continue having them, even though the uh, guidelines don't recommend that. Let's say we have a patient over 65, all negative cervical pap smear screening in the past. We stop screening and she finds a new partner. Do we need to restart screening at some point? It seems like that would be reasonable to do. And I understand why patients and clinicians ask about that as well. The current guidelines actually recommend against that for several reasons. First is that even if that patient had a new HPV exposure and infection, most likely her infection would clear within a couple of years and not cause clinical consequences. And the second reason is, again, the, what we mentioned earlier, the time to go from persistent HPV to cervical cancer is anywhere from 15 to 25 years, which makes continued screening less helpful. So what are the potential abnormal findings we get back on cervical cancer screening? And then what do you do with those results? The language hasn't changed much in terms of the terminology used to describe abnormal cervical cytology or PAP. That tends to fall in categories that we'd consider low-grade changes and high-grade changes. So those low-grade changes, everything has an acronym, of course, but ASCIS or atypical cells of undetermined significance, and then L-cell is low-grade changes. Those would be more minor PAP changes. More severe or high-grade changes include high-grade SIL, atypical squamous cells that you cannot rule out high-grade SIL and atypical glandular cells. So that's kind of the cytology category of abnormals. In terms of HPV screening, the test we have at Mayo and most labs use checks for 14 types of high-risk HPV. And the reports are such that you're told if your patient has type 16 or 18 specifically positive or negative, as those are the highest of the high risk. And the other 12 are bunched together and reported as positive or negative other 12. All right. I've had this thing come back on rare occasion. The cervical cancer test comes back, no endocervical cells seen. What's happening there? And more importantly, what do I do with that result? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I think this is an area that can become very confusing for providers. So if the report says no endocervical cells seen, what you need to do is ensure that the specimen is labeled as negative for intraepithelial lesion or malignancy and satisfactory for evaluation. And if you see those two phrases on the report, then the presence or absence of endocervical cells doesn't impact their precancer or cancer risk, and you would just continue with routine screening. But what you really need to be watching for is the word unsatisfactory. That means there wasn't an adequate sample to provide a PAP result. And if you see an unsatisfactory result, they need to come back in two to four months, even if the HPV part of the code test was negative, which is confusing, but they need to have repeat screening in two to four months. The issue is if you did a co-test and the PAP part was unsatisfactory, we don't know if that negative HPV test is truly negative or if it's a false negative and using a co-test and converting it to a primary HPV test hasn't been validated. So specifically ASCCP recommends against that. So again, no endocervical cells, but a satisfactory negative PAP is fine. An unsatisfactory PAP is concerning and actually associated with a higher risk of precancer or cancer. Okay. When should we be referring our patients to more extensive care, maybe to a 
OBGYN or somebody who has more uh, experience with cervical cancer? I think the only time you would need to do that is if your patient's results were such that a colposcopy was recommended. So if your patient qualifies to have that procedure done, in general, that would be a referral to gynecology. We do have primary care providers who are trained in colposcopy, and we have somebody at Mayo who does that as well. So there's, it kind of depends on the setting that you're in. But when we talked about kind of those possible abnormalities of PAP and HPV testing, I know management is beyond the scope of this talk. I'd be happy to come back and address that, but it's really important that clinicians are aware of the updated management guidelines. They came out in the spring of 2020 when another big thing was kind of happening in our medical world. And so I think a lot of folks missed that change. And so they developed clinical decision support system based app. So no longer do we have the picture algorithms and flowing charts to memorize, but we pretty much need to have access to the app either by purchasing it or going to the ASCCP.org website where you can access a free desktop version because behind the scenes guidelines are complicated enough that now we need to just enter current and prior results and that app tool will tell us what's needed. Well, I think with the pandemic, we've seen a pause in many of our screening tests for our patients. And the fear is uh, that we're gonna see some increase in uh, some of these diseases down the road, but hopefully that won't happen. Well, Kathy, you've given us a lot of information. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe give two or three key points on cervical cancer screening? Sure. I think one of the key points is what you started with, Daryl, that cervical cancer is preventable. It's preventable through HPV vaccination is kind of that primary prevention strategy. And then through screening and treatment of abnormal results as the secondary strategy. So even though, you know, the American Cancer Society estimates about 4,000 new cases and 4,000 deaths in our country this year, which is incredibly low compared to the rest of the world, it's still kind of a failure of our prevention system. And then the second point I want to make is that All three screening options offer strong protection if done over time in terms of cervical cancer incidence and mortality reduction. But once a patient is of an age that they qualify for an HPV-based test, there's definitely agreement among experts in the field that that is preferable. So primary HPV or co-testing, especially for your 30 to 65-year-olds, arguably for your 25 to 29-year-olds as well, if you follow the ACS guidelines. Well, we've been discussing cervical cancer screening with Dr. Kathy McLaughlin, a family physician at the Mayo Clinic. Kathy, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.